Greetings, all you 99 percenters. I think we're on air now. If not, the engineers will let me know. I'm going to presume we are and just uh, start the show today. This is Alternative Visions. This is Dr. Jack Rasmussen. As I promised last week, yeah, we're okay. As I promised last week, uh, I want to dedicate today's show to discuss the situation in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, uh, the politics associated with it, uh, and also, you know, look at it from a military perspective. Uh, we're coming up in a couple days here, I think on Sunday, 24th, uh, the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine. It's been going two full years. In February 24th, 2022, uh, Russia um, crossed the border uh, into Ukraine, uh, and the war began. Uh, and now it's two years later. We're going to hear a lot of uh, summaries on, on this, quote, anniversary date uh, by other sources here. You know, going to be a lot of articles written and so forth. Uh, and uh, I think it's appropriate because I've been writing and talking about this for the last two years for uh, us to take a look at the last two years. Well, what's what's been the case uh, if you recall, as I've mentioned here, uh, b before this war began, in January 2022, I wrote a piece uh, that's been published on my blog, jackrasmus.com. You can pick it up on Counterpunch and other places, too, uh, entitled 10 Reasons Why uh, the U.S. Wants Russia to Invade Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. and the empire had a lot to gain by this war, and uh that gain doesn't necessarily require a Ukrainian victory. Uh, we've already seen some of the big gains uh, for the U.S. empire from this. Uh, one, of course, being the U.S. has reestablished its total hegemony over NATO. Uh, that's a big one. It was uh, in trouble. NATO was in trouble under Trump. and uh, But now the U.S. is totally in control. Uh, second big gain has been driving Russia out of the European economy, particularly the German, but the European economy in general drove it out. That's been a success. Uh, and uh, the U.S. has stepped in, particularly in energy, selling uh, uh, Europe, Germany, uh, much higher costs, four times higher costs, uh, natural gas and oil and so forth. So big economic gains. The U.S. has solidified its control over the European, Western European economy. Uh, there have been other other gains as well, not least of which has been uh, the U.S. military industrial complex has got filthy rich over this. Uh, it can't produce enough weapons uh, to satisfy the demand. And of course, Who's paying for that weapons? Uh, Uncle Sam is paying. You know, you hear about all of this uh, money being sent to Ukraine and trying to get more funds. Well, most of that doesn't even get to Ukraine. That goes from the U.S. Treasury electronically uh, into the accounts of uh, Boeing and Lockheed and Raytheon and all these other military industrial complex weapon producers, right? So it's been a big boom for that sector. Uh, of uh, U.S. capitalism. Uh, there's other reasons and gains from it. Uh, you know, it's a way to see, well, how good are the Russians uh, in terms of uh, war 
con- conduct here. You know, what's what's their logistics, and uh, uh, can they, um, you know, use their economy to fight a war like this, and so forth. So, uh, you know. Uh, explore what about drones? Uh, let's test some of these new technologies. You know whether it's drones or counter counter battery uh, 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 artillery or uh, you know how well is Starlink and our surveillance and uh, uh, working, etc. You know these wars test out this stuff, and there's a good good opportunity for the. And of course they have. They've tested it out. They found, uh, of course, you know that uh, boy ships at sea are very vulnerable. You know, uh, at some point we should talk about the new technologies and the future of warfare because uh, it's clear that this war uh, indicates that some of the old uh, weaponry and so forth is outdated, doesn't work. Ships at sea are uh, really, uh, uh, you know, ducks. They're easy to target. Uh, they're shooting, shooting cavalry, uh, ships at sea. Uh, one area where Ukraine has had some success is it's driven uh, the Russian Navy out of uh, Crimea and further uh, further east to other Russian ports. You know, uh, air, airborne drones and uh, surface sea drones and undersea drones and everything are are pretty hard to um, prevent. <clears throat> some of them are going to get through, and we've seen the destruction of a number of Russian ships as a result. You know, and that kind of harm. That's kind of a harbinger here for the U.S. Navy, right? The U.S. relies a lot on the Navy. And, uh, you know, it could be that uh, surface fleets are really, their days are numbered. Anyway, let's not go on that digression too far. Uh, But, uh, you know, we want to look at some of the military consequences of the war. And as I uh, wrote about, Back in January 2022, you know, this is an an area that the U.S. uh, uh, imperialists can, uh, you know, learn some things about how effective their weapons are, how effective Russian weapons are, and military organization and so forth. All right. A year later, at the first anniversary, I wrote a follow-up article. I forget the title of that, but it says, maybe it says, Revisiting the Ten Reasons, I think. That's also on my blog. Check that out. So now it's two years, and uh, let's take a general assessment of what's going on in that war, both militarily, politically, of course, and uh, economically. Let's look at all those questions, kind of a sum up, you know, Uh, because I believe that war is not going to last more than another year, if that, you know. We had some uh, significant defeats of Ukraine in the east here just in the last uh, month. Uh, and now uh, the West is finally beginning to realize that it can't win that war in Ukraine. But as I said, you know, it's not important for American imperialists to win wars. It's important to have wars <laughs> because a lot of money is made by having wars, right? Even if you don't win, you leave the place in the total shambles. And that's a kind of a win, right? Or you get some sort of a compromise where you take a a bite of the apple instead of the whole apple. Uh, And you build up, uh, uh, you know, the case that you got to go have more wars. Uh, And this is the American way of war. This is what the neocons have been doing. They've been in control since the late 1990s. Uh, And we've been at wars, constant wars overlapping and everything since then. Perpetual warfare of empire. That's what 
That's what we've got here since the late 90s when NATO uh, went on the offensive and uh, beat up Yugoslavia and Serbia, the bombing, right? NATO was supposed to be a big defensive organization, right? So why did it have to go on the offense and bomb the hell out of out of Serbia? <laughs> you know, is that a def- was Serbia a big threat to NATO? No, uh, but it was a good opportunity for NATO to see how it could flex its muscle in uh, in going on the offense. And of course, it did, right? And then you know we had other other NATO participated conflicts, right? You know, blowing up little Libya. Uh, that was a NATO operation. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, the first and second Gulf Wars, uh, they were uh, NATO operations. The second one particularly was a NATO operation. Right. Well, so was the first one, 1990. Uh, and, uh, you know, Syria and Somalia and, you know, all these wars are going on. Uh, NATO's gone on offensive. NATO is, is an instrument of the U.S. empire now. Uh, a political military instrument to help push the empire east, whether it's east into the Middle East or whether it's east into Russia's sphere of interest, Ukraine, uh, whatever. All right, so uh, NATO is, uh, is, has been transformed. And this is clearly a proxy war between U.S.-run NATO and Russia uh, going on in, in Ukraine. All right. So let's uh, let's look at the, some of the military lessons of this particular war uh, to date, and I say this because we are—I believe—we are about to enter a new phase in the war in Ukraine, uh, a new phase in which Russia clearly has uh, an advantage in uh, in forces, troops, uh, weaponry, uh, and it's learned some lessons of some mistakes it's made in the first two years. It's got its shit together, as we say, uh, and its economy is on a war production footing now, unlike the West. Uh, and um, I think we're going to be moving into a, a period here in 2024 uh, where uh, Russia begins to uh, really kick butt in, uh, in Ukraine. And I'll explain why. Uh, you know, some have even been saying that um, uh, the special military operation which Russia calls its war uh, is uh, going to result in the collapse of the Ukraine uh, forces here before the end of the year. And even the Russian uh, Ministry of Defense is saying that they expect to wrap up the SMO special military operation sometime in early 2025. So uh, Russia really believes that uh, we're entering the last phase of this war. Well, if we are, then uh, the the tactics and so forth we're going to see uh, in the war are going to change to more massive uh, kinds of assaults that we've seen to date. Okay, so let's let's step back and uh, kind of look at the the military side of this. Right, uh, the first uh, phase of this was. Uh, uh, Russia crossing the border in February of 22 and uh, occupying significant area of Ukraine, uh, including uh, almost encircling Kiev, the capital city, and all throughout the northern border area in the Kharkov area, right? And uh, 
taking, uh, uh, you know, Mariupol and linking Crimea with uh, the Donbass area. Uh, that was the first phase, right? First phase of SMO. Now, you got to remember that Russia used only 190,000 troops. And that's like four divisions, maybe, across a 1,500-mile 1500 mile front. Now, there's no way that that kind of operation uh, could, quote, conquer and take land of that massive occupation. There's no way. That was really a way of uh, getting Ukraine to the bargaining table to negotiate some kind of a deal. And that actually happened, you see. Uh, in March of 2022, uh, Russia and senior spokespeople for Ukraine met in Istanbul, Turkey, and negotiated a deal. What were Russia's objectives, main objectives at that time, still including uh, today, although there's more objectives, I think, today. Uh, what were their initial objectives? Well, they just wanted Ukraine to be neutral. They didn't want Ukraine to join NATO uh, or militarily threaten Russia. They were willing to have a neutral Ukraine. And even in the Donbass, you know, which is the area that Ukraine was uh, shelling for eight years since 2014, uh, that's a highly Russian uh, language-speaking area of the far east of Ukraine. Donbass uh, is uh, two regions, uh, uh, what we would call states or provinces. One is Luhansk and the other is Donetsk, okay? Uh, and those areas, and plus Crimea, uh, are, were areas that were heavily Russian-oriented and speaking and culture and so forth. And uh, Ukraine was trying to bring them under control because they were kind of breakaway after 2014. Uh, and they were shelling that area. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Donbass uh, was an area uh, where, uh, you know, Russia, uh, when it invaded, uh, quickly uh, swept, swept over and, and controlled. Well, in Istanbul, uh, the uh, Russians were willing to agree willing to agree to allow those areas to remain in Ukraine with some autonomy, autonomy of language and religion and so forth. Uh, and there was a deal. There apparently was a deal. Uh, that was revealed recently by the Tucker Carlson interview with uh, uh, Putin. Uh, and even before that, uh, the Russians were, you know, waiving this agreement, this written agreement, tentative, of course, subject to approval uh, by Zelensky and the Ukraine uh, top brass there. Um, but there was a deal, and it was a pretty good deal for Ukraine. They would keep these provinces, except for Crimea, uh, within Ukraine uh, with some autonomy arrangements and would not bring NATO in, that was the big thing for Russia, uh, in, into Ukraine. You know, or Ukraine joined NATO, really what it is. NATO is there militarily. Okay, uh, so a big deal, but it was shot down uh, because uh, no sooner that they had a tentative agreement, uh, the West hearing of it, UK, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, quickly flew into Kiev and uh, convinced Zelensky not to agree to that, that, uh, look, we got all this commitment, a huge military commitment, which the West did have, 
uh, and uh, we're going to fund you as long as it takes, and we're all going to defeat Russia. And Zelensky uh, drank the Kool-Aid and uh, agreed to do that. And there was no agreement in Istanbul. Now, part of the agreement in Istanbul uh, at the time, this is March 2022, uh, was um, to withdraw uh, Russian troops from around Kiev. Uh, it comes out now, we know, that France and Germany uh, spoke to Putin and said, hey, uh, you guys are negotiating, let's have uh, some good faith on your side, Russia, uh, withdraw those troops around Kiev. Troops that could never, I mean, you know, look, 40,000, 50,000 troops could never take a major city like Kiev. You need uh, at least five to one ratio to assault a major city. And uh, the objectives of Putin and Russia was, was not to destroy Kiev, not to occupy Ukraine, but to give them to the bargaining table and to agree to a settlement that would protect uh, the security of Russia, i.e. no NATO in Ukraine. And as I said, that was achieved at Istanbul. But Boris Johnson scuttles the whole deal. Right? He comes in and he scuttles the whole deal. And then the war was on. Right? Okay. So part of the deal, as I said, is uh, Russia was going to withdraw. So Russia starts withdrawing as a good faith, talked into doing it by the French and the Germans. In other words, uh, Putin got snookered again. Right, he got snookered in Minsk back in 2015, and uh, now he doesn't trust the West at all. By the way, uh, and he pulled out the troops or started to withdraw the troops, and then they were attacked as they were being withdrawn that summer, uh, and uh, that would be the first uh, Ukrainian offensive, the summer of 2022, and that offensive was successful. Uh, they pushed the Russians who were already withdrawing, pushed them out of the northern Ukraine area, out of the Kharkov area, and all the way back to Lugansk. Uh, and the Russians had to consolidate back into the Donbass, its forces, lost all that territory around Kharkov and Sumy and so forth, and um, had to throw in 300,000 reservists quickly. The 190,000 were not sufficient to hold that area that it had occupied. You see, the Russians took, took Ukrainians by surprise in uh, February 24, 22. <clears throat> uh, the Ukrainians didn't believe that the Russians were actually uh, going to invade. The U.S. was telling them, but they didn't believe it. And the Rus uh, Russians caught them by surprise and concentrated some of their forces initially, uh, and that allowed them to take that land uh, initially. Uh, but part of the deal with Istanbul was to withdraw and then the uh, Ukrainians just kept pushing them as they withdrew and uh, a little bit of a route there in the north around Kharkov. But the Russians consolidated uh, and stopped that, that uh, first Ukrainian counteroffensive. So, you know, we, we've got after three or four months here, uh, we've got the initial Russian offensive Initial, initial SMO that occupied all that area. <clears throat> and then we have the first counteroffensive by Ukraine that summer of 22, uh, which uh, kind of runs out of steam by September, October of 2022. Russia consolidates to an <clears throat> area it can defend more, and it throws in 300,000 reservists, 
in order to help that consolidation. And that stops uh, the first uh, Ukrainian offensive. So that brings us up to about September, October of 22. Uh, then we got the winter of 23. What happens over the winter of 23? Well, Ukraine uh, prepares for a big second offensive over that winter. Uh, but strategically, we, history will show it took too long to do that. And as it was doing that, Russia was building up massive defenses all throughout the area uh, of the East, East Ukraine that it uh, controlled. And Russia has always been very good at defensive warfare. Uh, it blunted, uh, you know, in World War II, the Nazis and the Germans, uh, uh, you know, really uh, wrecked themselves on these Russian defenses in certain battles there. Uh, and that's the Russian way of war. Let the uh, opposition uh, bleed itself, uh, because if you're going to have an offensive, you need three, four to one ratio of troops. So you always use more troops up uh, in an offensive than the, those on defenses. Defense is always a superior position uh, in terms of ratio of, of forces needed. Uh, so while uh, Ukraine was raising troops uh, over the winter and planning a second offensive in 23, uh, Russia was building these deep defenses all throughout uh, its area in the east, you know, from Lugansk in the north and all the way to uh, Crimea in the south. All right, so uh, then we have uh, this second Ukrainian offensive that begins in June, early June of 23, last year. Second Ukrainian offensive, a massive offensive against a deep, massive defense. And guess who wins? Uh, Russia wins very clearly. <clears throat> uh, even independent accounts indicate that the uh, Ukrainian offensive in the summer of 23 lost more than 30,000, 40,000, maybe, maybe even more troops. And that number may even be larger than that. I, I've seen numbers of you know, 80, 90,000 uh, were lost during that offensive. They could not penetrate the defenses of the Russians, and they uh, <clears throat> were bloodied in the process of trying to do that. <clears throat> they probably waited too long. If they had pushed uh, their offensive into winter, instead of waiting to June of 23, uh, before the Russians had established those defenses, well, they might have gotten away with, with uh, some wins there. Uh, but the second uh, uh, offensive was devastating for Ukraine. Uh, it decimated there are more of their forces. Uh, uh, the U.S. had provided all kinds of <clears throat> equipment. I mean, thousands of tanks and personnel carriers and so forth. Uh, you know, it, it gave them uh, whatever they needed. Uh, and the Europeans uh, gave them all, all kinds of, uh, of uh, former Soviet Union military equipment <clears throat> that it had in store, you know, tanks and planes and so forth. <clears throat> so it looked good on paper, <clears throat> but it failed. Did it fail because of the defenses, the superior defenses called, you know, the, the Surovikin line, General Surovikin created those defenses? Was that it, uh, or was it uh, <clears throat> the strategy employed by the Ukrainian army, the U.S. was continually trying to get them to concentrate their forces uh, on this certain point in the south in what's called the Zaporizhia area, <clears throat> 
to drive to Mariupol and and the, the Azov Sea, <clears throat> and uh, apparently they repeatedly not did not concentrate they Ukraine their forces sufficiently uh, to break through the line. <clears throat> At least that's the defensive explanation that the U.S. gives <clears throat> for the defeat. Whether that's true or whether they just couldn't penetrate that line is a a question to be resolved by future evidence and writing. So uh, we have the defeat in the summer of last year and the exhaustion of the of the forces. Now, while this was going on, <clears throat> this defeat, uh, the mobilization of the Russian war economy was uh, gearing up, and Russia was uh, uh, recruiting massive new forces that it planned to throw into the field here in 2024. Uh, it reported that they were training 420,000 new troops. Now, you know, Russia has uh, its initial 190,000, and then it has 300,000 reservists. Now, some of those probably got recycled out. You know, it doesn't mean that there were 490,000. Maybe half <clears throat> were still there, a couple hundred thousand. And... Uh, now you have this influx of fresh troops that have been trained for a full year, uh, that have even uh, you know more more advanced weaponry, uh, and uh, they've been beginning to have their weight felt here in 2024, uh, and uh, their full weight has yet to be felt in 2024. On the other hand, uh, Ukraine has not been able to mobilize another round of troops the way the Russians had. You know, Russia, these are, by the way, volunteers. Russia has, has claimed that 1,500 a day uh, were volunteering to join uh, the Russian army here in 2023. And they've raised and trained, adequately trained, these 420,000. And now they're being added to the front. And we're seeing the result. The result is uh, the fall of another strategic city uh, in, in the Donbass called Avdeevka, uh, which was kind of a big fortress town uh, with lots of Ukrainian forces, brigades of all kinds, defending it uh, and preventing the Russians from uh, pushing west and, and retaking all of uh, Donetsk uh, uh, province, which was split pretty much. Uh, massive uh, of Ukrainian forces along the front line uh, and in the city of, of Dievka. Uh But now Avdievka has been taken by the Russians. The Russians threw 40,000 troops, uh, committed them to take the city of Dievka, and they have. And they are using tactics uh, that they weren't really using before learning their lessons in what's called combined forces. In other words, uh, uh, missiles and air use of air and use of armor and infantry. I've seen it reported that the Russians were dropping on a Javka uh, four to five hundred bombs a day, a day before their infantry uh, flowed in and, and took the city. Uh, you know, these are like 1,000, 1,500 pound bombs a day. And they're just blowing the hell out of the place. <clears throat> Uh, and uh, you know that kind of a, of a, of an assault uh, 
assumes that you've got air superiority, which, of course, they did. Air superiority, finally. In the weeks prior to that, Russia had uh, uh, pretty much neutralized uh, Ukraine's uh, air force <clears throat> in various ways. Uh, so they had now air superiority over the Donbass, uh, and uh, they could do this bombing, and that uh, you know pretty much cleared cleared the way for the infantry. Infantry. So they've they've taken uh, Avdiivka after committing forty thousand troops. Now it's also reported that in the south, uh, in the Zaporizhia area, that the Russians have amassed another sixty thousand troops. So there is talk of uh, a new Russian offensive in the south as Russia takes Avdiivka in the east and starts to uh, take you know, a lot of the villages uh, west of Avdiivka. Uh, we've got this possible big offensive in the south. We've got an even bigger offensive being prepared in the north, in that area around Kharkov, uh, and western uh, Luhansk where uh, the Russians lost uh, control in uh, the fall of 2022 to the first Ukrainian offensive, right? Reportedly, they've amassed 110,000 new troops in that area. That area is kind of quiet, you know? There's not a lot of fighting been going on in that area, which is kind of a sign something's coming. Well, why is it coming? Uh, because uh, the Ukrainians have been uh, uh, harassing Russia uh, from that area, uh, sending drones and missiles uh, into Russia proper and uh, bombing Russian cities, you know, with missiles and drones like Belgorod uh, and uh, even Moscow, as far as Moscow sending drones. So the Russians have to push, have to push the Ukrainians back in the north. Uh, and I think that's where the offensive is going to come. It's going to come in the north around Kharkov. Uh, uh, region here to push push back uh, the line so that uh, Ukrainians can't uh, be uh, hassling, uh, uh, you know, Russian cities across the border. <clears throat> uh, it's still not enough to push on to Kiev. You know, this offensive is not an offensive that will take Kiev because the Russian strategy is really to destroy the Ukrainian army, debilitate it to such an extent it can't fight and they sue for uh, some kind of a settlement. Uh, the Russian strategy is, is not a strategy that says, oh, we're going to take land. Uh, when they need to, they do. But um, in these, uh, these battles for these cities, whether it's Avdiivka this year or the big city battle last year, Bakhmut, right, or Mariupol in the first year, uh, these big defeats for the Ukrainians are really about <clears throat> destroying the Ukrainian army and their losses have been massive, right? So Russia is poised uh, with uh, amassing troops in these two areas, south and north. The question is, which one of these is going to be a feint and which one's going to be real, <laughs> right? No one knows. A lot of speculation going on. Oh, no, they're amassing in the south just to, uh, you know, divert the Ukrainian forces to the south so when they... Uh, you know, launch the offensive in the, in the north, it'll be that, that much stronger, and say, no, no, they're amassing in the north because they're going to do it in the south. <clears throat> well, we'll see. But something's coming. Something's coming here after the Russian uh, elections coming up pretty soon. Something's coming in the spring, and it's going to be big. 
<clears throat> going to be big offensive. And we may see strategies and tactics that are um, uh, fundamentally different than we've seen so far, which has been roughly a defensive uh, a war on the part of uh, Russia <clears throat> uh, for, for the past year. Uh, now they have the forces. Now they have the forces. You know, if you look at the principles of warfare, you know, every uh, new ROTC student or new uh, military academy uh, uh, student in their first year, one of the first courses they take is, you know, let's study what are the principles of war. Because the principles of war apply no matter uh, what kind of a war you, you, you're in. Even guerrilla war, principles of war. What are the principles of war, right? Well, you know, the first principle is he wins who concentrates his force, forces massively uh, greater than his opponents. Concentrate your forces, you know, uh, particularly at a point of conflict, much greater. You know, achieve a four or five to one ratio of your forces to theirs uh, because then, uh, you know, you can engage in tactics in which the opposition uh, cannot successfully uh, respond to and it opens up gaps uh, and uh, those gaps then can be penetrated with your superior forces. So concentration of forces is the first principle. And as we saw when uh, Russia, in, you know, initial invasion, the SMO in 22, uh, did not have a sufficient concentration of forces to be able to defeat uh, or, or even take, let alone hold, a city like Kiev you know, or in the other areas either. They just didn't have it. That was not the intent of the SMO. The intent was to get them to the bargaining table, which succeeded, uh, but, uh, you know, Putin was snookered. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we saw the results of that. That's why Putin does not trust the West anymore or any deal. That's why it's going to be very difficult for Ukraine and NATO uh, to negotiate any any deal uh, with Putin that's short of uh, militarily neutralizing Ukraine and assuring Russia that there will not be a NATO in Ukraine. Uh, short of that, um, you're not going to get any deal. And also, uh, the Russians are convinced that, uh, you know, the Kiev government is uh, is infiltrated and full of uh, pro-Nazi uh, uh, forces here. And uh, uh, the Russians, you know, when it comes to Nazis, are, are really uh, e extremely uh, agitated, <laughs> to say the least. And, uh, I mean, they lost 25 million people of World War Two. You know, you can expect that, right? <clears throat> By the way, there's a lot of talk about, oh, uh, oh, you know, the U.S. defeated Russia, uh, Germany in World War II. The Russians didn't do it. Well, you know, Germany lost 5 million troops in World War II. 4 million were lost on the Eastern Front. 4 million. Yeah. So, uh, you know, who really defeated Germany? It, it, it was, it was uh, you know, Russia. Russia, USSR at the time, right? And uh, it cost uh, Russia 9 million troops to defeat 5 million, to kill 5 million Germans, Nazis, right? So, you know, the Russians are very nervous about anything that smacks of Nazism. And, of course, you got a lot of these uh, ultra-nationalists running around uh, waving Nazi flags, you know, and there's uh, 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 fascist uh, formations, uh, battalions, uh, uh, outright... Uh, uh, you know, within the Ukrainian army, and they played a big role in the coup in 2014. Uh, so, uh, you know, Russia wants denazification of uh, of uh, Ukraine's government and military. 
Uh, that's a tougher one for Ukraine to agree to, right? Because if Zelensky and these guys try to purge, you know, the uh, the Banderists, as they call them, uh, within their government and the military, they're probably not going to last too long themselves. All right. So another reason why you're not going to get much of an agreement here. Uh, so what we're looking at are, are phases in which each side was able to concentrate forces uh, and catch the... Uh, the opponent by surprise, that's another principle of war, surprise, mobility is yet another, um, maneuver, the ability to maneuver, um, internal lines of communication and supply, you know, the problem with Ukraine has got these external lines going back to Europe and the U.S. for its equipment, right? Uh, so, and Russia's got it, you know, just a few miles across the border, that's an advantage. Um, production, who can produce more? Uh, usually wins a war like this. Uh, one side gets exhausted, they can't produce as much as the other side. <clears throat> wars are won by economics, modern wars. I'm not talking about these uh, small wars of terrorism and so forth. I'm talking in small countries that the U.S. can beat up, right? But they can't, they're having a hard time beating up Russia. Uh, and they'll have a harder time with China. Uh, so, you know, war is about mobilization and production. Uh, Russia has mobilized its economy. Uh, the West has not. The West has tried to fight this war by throwing its surplus equipment at Ukraine, whether it's the old Soviet equipment in Europe or some new equipment in the U.S. that it's dribbling out there to Ukraine. Uh, because this equipment's pretty expensive. You know, a Patriot anti-missile system, I think costs like $10 million or something, some incredible number, you know, fully outfitted, $10 million per, and it's given them, uh, it's given Ukraine seven and of these and it's lost five of them already. Uh, the U.S. has depleted its stock pretty much, almost, of uh, ammunition and weaponry and so has uh, Western Europe in providing uh, this equipment to, to, to Ukraine. Ukraine has depleted its uh, human forces uh, in these in battles, so, you know, up to now. Ukraine's trying to mobilize 500,000 more troops. That's a new program. They want to mobilize 500,000. Where are they going to get them? You know, you, you've got about five, six million Ukrainian men who uh, uh, left with their families when the war began. They left there in Europe and places, right? Uh, how do you get them back? Well, Ukraine government is trying to force them back, uh, cancel, get their visas canceled, and uh, uh, grab their uh, bank accounts in, uh, in still in Ukraine and so forth, force them back. They're, they're, getting, they're pretty desperate. They're going to get, get those people back. So Ukraine is, um, there's lots of evidence Ukraine is sending these uh, uh, groups of uh, uh, veterans and so forth uh, to uh, grab uh, military-age men off the street and force them into the uh, Ukrainian uh, forces here. That's how they're going to mobilize 500,000. By the way, I've, I've seen figures that the average age of, uh, of a soldier in Ukraine is like 43 years old. I don't know if that's true, but that's amazing if that's true, right? Uh, anyway, uh, they're trying to mobilize 500,000 when... Uh, Russia's already mobilized and trained 420,000, and they're there on the front and will be in the front, you know. Uh, there's some evidence that even in, in the Battle of Avdivka, 
uh, last couple of weeks that a good part of that 420,000 has 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 been committed was committed uh, to the 40,000 Russian troops that participated in in that uh, that battle a particular battle i'm sure uh, you know the 60,000 amassing on the southern front and the 110 on the northern front include a lot of that 420,000 and by the way that 420,000 has been trained and they are volunteers whereas ukraine has had to grab a lot of people uh, who don't want to fight and not train them very much and throw them into the battle that's coming. That's not a good ratio of uh, quantity and quality of forces. Uh, you know, Russia says it's got 600,000 total now uh, committed in Ukraine. And in terms of combat troops, uh, Ukraine probably has like 350,000 so forth. So Russia has a, a concentration of forces advantage now. Uh, it also has air superiority. Uh, uh, in terms of weaponry, you know, both sides are pretty much uh, uh, the, the same, except for ammunition. There's there's signs that uh, uh, Ukraine's having problems with ammunition, particularly artillery, uh, and 155 millimeter. Um, you know, this the most important uh, state of uh, ammunition, artillery ammunition, because this is artillery war going on there. Uh, that's why so many are getting getting slaughtered. Uh, the U.S. produced, uh, when the war began, first year or two, uh, only 14,155 millimeter shells, 14,000 a month, 14,000 a month, okay? And Europe, maybe three or 4,000 a month. So no more than 20,000, 155 millimeter shells were provided, a month were provided to Ukraine. When Ukraine launched, launched its offensive last year, it was using 6,000 shells a day. So you get 20,000 coming from the West a month and 6,000 a day, uh, you know, you're going to run out of them pretty quick. Uh, the U.S. depleted pretty much. And there's only one, like one factory in Maine in the U.S. that produces 155 millimeter shells. Right? Uh, it had to uh, go and get uh, uh, shells and from South Korea and Japan and other places. Uh, and the U.S. military is getting nervous that its its stocks of weapons and ammunition are being depleted, uh, and the same in, uh, in, in Western Europe. Uh, Russia is producing a million shells, million 155 millimeter shells a year, a million a year, right? Right now, well, that would, I mean, even in end of 2023, that's what they were producing. They say, well, we will produce a million shells here in 2024 a year. <clears throat> and they've also gotten shells from North Korea and drones from Iran. Uh, so <clears throat> there's plenty of weaponry. And now Russia is producing that. And their they're head of uh, the military, this guy Shoigu, has uh, predicted, uh, you know, 200 tanks per month they're producing now uh, in you know, I won't go over all the statistics, but apparently they're uh, they're on a full war production footing, unlike the West, <clears throat> and that's uh, not good news for the long run uh, for Ukraine. Now we got all this uh, politics going on here uh, with the funding. 
uh, the U.S. funding, right? We got this stuck in Congress of $61 billion, right? The U.S. wants to give to Ukraine to keep it going. Uh, when the war began, um, uh, Zelensky indicated that the Ukraine needed $6 billion a month to keep its economy from collapsing and to run the war. $6 billion a month. That's $72 billion a year. Now, its internal revenues can only cover half of its budget. Okay? So, the Ukrainian economy is being kept afloat by the U.S. and NATO. Truly kept afloat. Uh, the U.S. money uh, is going not only for weapons for Ukraine, but to pay for the functioning of its government. Uh, Ukrainian government workers uh, and uh, not just the military, but the government itself uh, and their pensions, which are better than American pensions, by the way, uh, are uh, being paid by U.S. funds. We're paying uh, Ukrainian workers, right, who often get better deals in the U.S. Uh, and keeping that, that country afloat. And it, you know, the IMF have given them 13, well, no, more than that, like $18 billion dollars uh, just to keep their currency from collapsing. And Europe has given money as well uh, to them. Uh, so I estimate, you know, both military and non-military, about $200 billion has been uh, given to Ukraine in the first two years. Some, some of that is uh, also uh, the value of, uh, of uh, these uh, former Russian or Soviet arms that were given to Ukraine. What's the market value of those? So about, a, about, two, about $100 billion a year, which uh, just about looks the same. The U.S. wants $61 billion, and the Europeans have uh, said they will raise $54 billion through loans. So both sides are now, of NATO, are giving, uh, planning to give, want to give, uh, you know, $100 billion or so again in 2024. So by the end of 2024, the U.S. will have spent $300 billion on this war in Ukraine. $300 billion. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so that's the funding picture. But the U.S. can't get uh, its $61 billion uh, through uh, Congress. The Republican House uh, is very reluctant to agree to that because, look, the U.S. has a $2 trillion deficit. Two trillion dollars deficit, right? Uh, it can't pay its bills now. Two trillion dollars. Yeah. So we're going to give another hundred billion dollars uh, because that's what it is. They want more money uh, to prepare for the war against uh, China down the road. Build up the military presence in China. That means the Navy. Uh, and uh, they're throwing money at uh, Israel now. Blank check at Israel to pay for its war there. Uh, so, you know, it's about $100 billion. They, I think they wanted 90 some billion dollars, $61 billion just for Ukraine. Well, they're having trouble getting that through the Republican uh, House because the Republicans are saying, well, you want that, uh, uh, Joe Biden? Uh, well, then uh, we want our, our bill on uh, the border, the U.S. southern border, right? And uh, Biden's choking on that one. He can't agree to that. And they're both maneuvering, both sides are maneuvering around each other, like two boxes in a ring in the first round, right? Uh, so uh, <clears throat> they're having trouble getting that pushed through. Uh, the Europeans are having trouble getting their $54 billion pushed through because uh, 
they keep getting it uh, 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 vetoed uh, by Hungary's uh, uh, President Orban, who thinks it's a waste of money, the war is a waste of money, and he's leaning towards Russia anyway. <clears throat> and now a change in the Slovakia government over there is supporting uh, uh, Orban. Uh, and uh, in Germany, uh, popular uh, opinion is uh, uh, rapidly growing against that war. Uh, why? Uh, because it's costing Germany a lot here. We can talk about the economic impacts. Uh, okay, so this was uh, the position, the, the situation militarily, and we're running out of time, so let me jump to some other stuff. <clears throat> Today we've seen the latest version of sanctions by the U.S. against Russia, which are really designed uh, to try to fill some gaps uh, where sanctions clearly aren't working, uh, particularly in, in stopping uh, <clears throat> Russian oil. Uh, being sold in the rest of the world. You see, when we talk about sanctions, there's sanctions, which are called primary sanctions against Russia itself that aren't working. And then there's uh, this dangerous, politically sensitive area of secondary sanctions. In other words, if uh, they can't stop Russia with sanctions, well, they're going to uh, try to put sanctions on those countries that's, that are cooperating with Russia. Right? Those are secondary sanctions, right? That's what the price caps on oil are all about. Um, and uh, that's what some of these new announcements are to try to, uh, uh, you know, fill the gaps. And also a lot of, uh, I think, like 300. Uh, they announced 500 sanctions, 300 of them are against individuals in Russia and in these other countries. Well, you know, forget that. That doesn't have any effect virtually at all. <clears throat> some oligarchs lose a couple of their yachts. So what? Right. Uh, they find ways around it. <clears throat> okay, so uh, that's what these latest sanctions are. And the sanctions aren't working because you look at the Russian economy, it's growing at a pretty good pace. The last six months, like a 5% growth pace. You know, uh, Its military production is ramping up. <clears throat> uh, its revenues from oil, it's just selling more oil. Uh, and uh, even, even though the price of oil is, is down, it's selling more oil. And as I said, it's selling it not just directly, but through these other uh, intermediary states like Turkey and UAE and so forth. The sanctions are targeting them, too. But they won't have any effect, right? So you got a funding problem. you got sanctions that aren't working, getting more desperate. Russia economy is growing, both the output and revenue from oil and energy industrial products. Uh, and... Um, uh, the economy itself, uh, jobs are very plentiful, unemployment is very low, um, and, uh, you know, you got a little bit of inflation uh, growing, I think it's like 7% seven or so, uh, because the economy is overheating with the war production increase, right, <clears throat> uh, and a lot of the workers are, are going into the military here, <clears throat> as we said, so wages get pushed up. Uh, the U.S. economy, uh, what about the European economy? Well, uh, if anything, uh, these sanctions and this war has devastated Europe's economy. Europe's in a recession, especially Germany and the U.K. Why? Because mostly because of these high energy prices. The U.S. drove Russia out <clears throat> of Germany and, and Europe, <clears throat> and uh, the U.S. oil companies <clears throat> and liquid national gas companies have just filled the gap, filled the vacuum. Uh, selling, you know, oil and gas to Europe, 
uh, guess what? At four times the price they were buying it from Russia. Uh, Germany had particularly a very industrial economy and, and very dependent on energy costs. Those energy costs have risen significantly. Uh, and uh, a lot of the German companies that were chemical companies and so forth uh, are, are just having trouble and having layoffs as a result. You know, they can't cover their costs. At the same time, you know, the U.S. is devastating Germany in other ways. Uh, the U.S. passed this Inflation Reduction Act, which is big subsidies on companies if they relocated to the U.S., you know, to produce, uh, you know, alternative energy and so forth. Well, what that's doing is it's sucking out companies from Europe, particularly Germany, coming to the U.S. do business here, investing here instead of there. Uh, uh, the, the Germans aren't too happy about that. <clears throat> And high U.S. interest rates have resulted in higher European interest rates, uh, which has slowed down their economy as well, uh, and which has uh, caused their currency, the euro, to rise, which has cut their exports, particularly to China. So Europe is getting squeezed here pretty good by U.S. and China. <laughs> China trying to come out of its uh, slowdown here is lowering its cost of its exports. And, uh, you know, the combined effect of the two big economies, China and, and the U.S., uh, is squeezing the hell out of Europe. <laughs> yeah, Europe's becoming an economic satrapy of the United States. You know, its elites uh, uh, have uh, taken control of national governments to a significant extent, you know, through the European Commission uh, and, and the European Central Bank, right, and the European Parliament, these are the people that you see in the media who are saying, no, we got to go to war with Ukraine. we got to do whatever the U.S. wants. And when the U.S. destroys a pipeline, well, we're not going to say anything about that, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, you, you've got this phenomenon of, uh, of uh, capitalist elites and their friends, their political friends, who are really running all of Europe from top down on these new institutions, right? And... Uh, uh, you know, the national institution, national sovereignty in these countries is, is really being questioned now. Uh, and that's fueling alternative parties. Like in Germany, you got a new left party um, because the so-called lefts, that's PD, and the Greens are all for the war. Uh, and you got the big gains by the uh, proto-Nazi party called the uh, uh, Alternative for Deutschland, for Germany, AFD, right? That's growing very, that's the second biggest party now. Okay, so uh, Europe's in the deep funk economically, politically, um, becoming irrelevant globally, increasingly becoming an extension of the U.S. NATO runs its foreign policy now, and the U.S. has more control over its economic uh, uh, system as, than ever before. <clears throat> okay, uh, Russian economy is doing well, as we said, U.S. economy, uh, well, you know, uh, some of our uh, prices of energy is because, you know, we're shipping a lot of this gas and oil to, particularly gas, uh, to Europe, creating supplies here, driving up the cost here. Um, globally, uh, the U.S. is shooting its empire in the foot. The neocons running this show, and I'll finish up on this point, are destroying the American economic empire. You know, how are they doing so? Well, these sanctions and this war are resulting in the uh, Russians and the Chinese and, uh, you know, <clears throat> with the Indians and Brazilians, South Africans, the original BRICS, as they call them, <clears throat> forming a new southern alliance, 
against the U.S. empire. Uh, and now they've got five new countries that joined them from the Middle East, oil companies. The BRICS are challenging the U.S. imperial patrol, and that's going to be a big one. <laughs>